on episode 136 of the Vincast, I chat with Michael John Corbett, Kiwi-born winemaker behind Vanguardist Wines. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Guestbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. Uh, great to have you with us as always. Um, very excited to be able to have uh, a little bit more regularity with uh, new episodes. Uh, and um, it's great to be able to share uh, some of these fantastic stories from people behind the wines that you enjoy. Uh, and I really want to uh, show my appreciation for people who have supported me uh, in the last um, sort of seven, seven or eight months since I launched my own little wine brand, Vino Intrepido. I'm very excited uh, later this month to be heading down to Hobart for the Bottle Tops Wine Festival at uh, Franklin and uh, Tommy Hugo's. Um, so I'll be pouring my uh, my Vino Intrepido wines there. Uh, I do hope to see you there if you haven't already bought your tickets. Obviously, it's part of the Dark Mofo event, which is uh, an amazing uh, an experience I've been told. I haven't actually experienced it myself so far. So uh, I'm really excited to be able to um, head down myself. Uh, but yeah, hope to see you there. Uh, speaking of my own wines, uh, a little while ago, I uh, when I was in the warehouse just um, checking on my wines, I was approached by someone who uh, told me that they uh, liked the podcast and uh, they introduced themselves as um, this week's guest, uh, Michael John Corbett, who uh, is the winemaker behind Vanguardist Wines, which is a brand that's uh, really getting a lot of attention, uh, particularly here in Melbourne. Uh, a lot of the top soms are pouring Michael's wines, uh, and I can understand why having tasted them myself. Uh, so um, I was able to sit down with Michael when he was recently over in Melbourne releasing some new vintages, uh, and it was great to hear about his uh, his story. So I do hope you enjoy the episode. Please do stick around until the end to find out how you can get in contact with us. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Michael, thank you for making the trek out to uh, the official Vincast studio uh, whilst you're here in Melbourne showing new release wines. And obviously, thank you very much for uh, for inviting me along to the uh, the event the other day. It was uh, great to see some of the new wines and, of course, taste some of the wines on a previous episode of uh, Let's Taste. But uh, thank you for being on the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Michael, I start every episode, as you possibly might know, uh, by asking my guests the first interaction they had with wine that made them think about it in a different way and possibly started them on that path towards a career in the wine industry. I remember the first wine that had a real impact on me was a uh, Trinity Hill Merlot, of all things, um, from the 99 vintage in Hawke's Bay. And it's the first time I saw wine in a slightly different light, um, having had a very amateur um, entry before that. Where, whereabouts did you grow up? Uh, in Hawke's Bay. Oh, you, that's, you're from that region, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and your family's not involved with wine no, at all? First generation. Yeah. What, what, what sort of, uh, what was their trade? Um, my father's a refrigerator and, and general engineer and, and mother just was really a full-time mother. So not, um, not a super close family that, that had any links to wine at all, really. Right. And tell me about the, uh, the context of, uh, drinking this Trinity Hill wine. Um, I was sitting in a, uh, an Italian restaurant, um, with a with a young lady that later became my wife, and then <laughs> and then didn't stay a wife, but um, 
it was just an experience for for a young person. I was in, in my very early twenties, and um, I just remember flavors and and textures and an experience that I probably haven't had with a beverage at all before. Right. Um. What were you doing at the time? Were you studying anything? Uh, or working? I was. I was actually working in hospitality, so doing a little bit of stuff uh, in the kitchen as well as uh, managing bars. Um, yeah, quite a big complex in Hawke's Bay at that point in time, which is uh, no longer there. Right, okay. Did you have uh, particular ideas about what you wanted to do as far as a career? Or you yeah, sort of- yeah, I was actually uh, I was going to be a professional golfer. Really? Um, so this is probably just after the time that I, I retired, essentially, from golf at about the age of just before my 21st birthday. Wow. Um, is that the normal age, like the gymnasts retire? Yeah, I've never heard a golfers retiring that early. It was yeah, it was a very um, it was a very young age. I That's think when I, I picked was, it up. I was very brash and and I don't know, probably a bit arrogant and maybe a bit lost in my life at this point. So um, may have been a bad dis- decision to to quit golf because I didn't really have the opportunity to to have a real crack at it. Um, even though I had had a good couple of years playing close to full time, um, but it led me into what is now my my uh, ultimate passion, which is what I live and breathe now, which is wine. Mm. And how did you sort of take your first steps with hospitality, the way that you kind of explored a little bit more and, and, and started you on that path? Absolutely, yeah. It was it was that working in um, – we, we, there was actually an Irish pub. There was a family restaurant. There was a fine dining restaurant. There was a seafood restaurant. And, and I just explored a little bit more with food than I had before. And then that rolled into wine. Uh, obviously, Hawke's Bay is quite – um, wine eccentric, um, as a place to be. And then, yeah, I guess I had some experiences, which, which really switched me on and then pretty quickly made the decision to, to study Bachelor of Wine Science. How developed was Hawke's Bay as a wine producing region and probably more importantly, uh, as far as wine tourism at the time? I look, I think it's, it was pretty good for what is a, a fairly small region. Um, that's not super easy to get to. I think it was a, a quite a high end region for, for New Zealand. So there was good exposure. There's a lot of good cellar doors um, in and around the, the likes of Gimlet Gravels with with places like Trinity Hill and um, Tomato Estate and, and Craggy Range sort of a standout um, off the top of my head. So so there was good exposure and there was good opportunity to actually go out and taste wines um, easily, mm-hmm. which was great. And uh, what was it that made you decide to follow winemaking as a career path? If you were working in hospitality previously, you know, do you remember why you didn't kind of continue down that pathway? Um, oh, there was a there was a couple of reasons. I was I was actually very interested in food, um, and I actually believed that you know I, I had some some really talented chefs that um, I saw working and. Uh, awkwardly saw them probably in that awkward situation of uh, drugs and alcohol mm-hmm. being being quite a uh, a big part of their lives, and and I was a little bit concerned with my personality that I could get trapped in that circle. If you were like that into golf at the time, for example, that you kind of wanted to f- follow a, a career path as a professional, it seems like you kind of a, a somewhat of an addictive personality and kind of really get into something. Yeah, that would be um, be very fair to say. Sometimes it doesn't last for a long time, but when I have when I have a crack, it's uh, it's all or nothing. Mm. And um, wine has stuck for quite some time now, which is which is a nice thing. And what so winemaking was the was the choice? Yeah, and slightly, I, I guess slightly safer vices. It's slightly safer vices, but I guess with wine, it's such a an exploration that you'll never 
uh, you'll never master it. There's always something new. There's more to taste. There's more to see. Vintage are changing. So it's it's a totally different world for me where uh, you can never get bored. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, was some, did someone say, oh, you should go and study or did you kind of go, well, how do I become a winemaker? Oh, I go and study. Yeah, no, I guess my, my ex saw um, maybe that little twinkle about wine pretty pretty early and um, and supported me and, and encouraged me to do do the course. So mm-hmm. um, with that sort of support, it was it was an easy decision to make. Um, very very difficult initially because I didn't study um, any science at school. I was very adamant that I, w- I didn't want to study science. So um, to go into a science degree, I had to do bridging courses and things like that. But once we got over that hurdle, it sort of it rolled on really nicely. Mm. So where did you study? Uh, at EIT in Hawke's Bay. Oh, okay. So there, there yeah. is a is it sizable or quite small? Um, it's it's not a it's not a big place, but they were at that point, and I'm not sure if it's still correct that they were doing the um, the Charles Sturt course. So they were delivering that same course over in New Zealand. Ah, oh, right. Okay. Um, but a really great spot. Um, obviously in the heart of Hawke's Bay, so you had good access to wineries. There was a small winery on site, which was actually a really nice little winery um, and good resources. So. Mm. I'm very happy with the the course content there. Got a lot out of the the course. Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, it was it was it was very good. It, it gave you a, a good understanding, a good um, ability to make decisions and find research. I guess more around problems um, rather than teaching you how to make wine. Yeah, such. right. Um, yeah. At the time, uh, I'm sure you were kind of looking at tasting wines and being inspired somewhat. Um, did you have particular ideas about working in Hawke's Bay or did you have ideas about, you know, as you were tasting wines possibly from other parts of New Zealand or Australia or from Europe, for example, did you have um, aspersions to, uh, you know, go and travel and work overseas? Yeah, so pretty pretty quickly I, I started traveling um, and, I don't know, I was exposed to, to Hawke's Bay first. We were talking um, Syrah, Bordeaux blends, Chardonnay. Um, and then quickly you peek out into, you know, maybe Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, Central Otago Pinot, um, but sort of found an affiliation pretty early on with Semillon, which was probably a slightly strange thing, um, and Semillon from Gisborne, uh, which then piqued my interest in Australian Semillon, uh, specifically Hunter Semillon. So the first vintage abroad was to Tyrrells. Um, I did that for a couple of years and then um, ventured out to Europe, to, to France, um, and I think, yeah, of of around about twenty two vintages, there's four countries and twelve regions that I've covered now, um, and probably will keep 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 going with with a little bit more. Yeah, right. Okay. Where was the first um, European vintage? Uh, that was in the Languedoc in the in the Minervois, mm-hmm. um, in France, and had a really great experience there. Um, and during that time, I travelled a little bit further south into the into the Roussillon. To a very small village called Mori, where I uh, ended up falling in love uh, almost instantly with Grenache. Mm. Um, so since then, I've spent more four more vintages down there, and um, yeah, there's some some pretty strong plans in the pipeline where where we're going to start producing our own wine over Gr- there as well. Grenache, not a variety you find that much in New Zealand. No, I, I didn't even know about it being planted um, when when I. Uh, was there? I think there were some young young vines around the Gimlet Gravels and um, around the Dataroa Triangle. Um, but are, there, I, are, are there other many other Rhone varieties in in the Gimlet Gravel? No, obviously Syrah is really strong. Um, 
and my experience with it was quite quite low uh, at that point so I, I hadn't really explored a lot and, and didn't understand it really well outside of Sarah. I'm sure that it probably has um, other Rhone varietals planted but my, my concern is maybe that it's it's too volatile like it's it's probably going to be a five and ten or a or a seven and ten or or a three and ten year struggle to um, get ripeness yeah okay yeah, what, I mean, was, what about like viognier for example yeah there's definitely viognier um i think growing quite well there um stylistically yeah it's it's a tough righty anyway mm. so mm. which style do you go you know a slightly fresher approach or you know that really unctuous rich approach um i suppose driven more by vintage than than maybe necessarily style mm. um, with the winemaker's hands so uh, once you finished your studies did you have somewhat of a, a nomadic existence you're working vintages in northern hemisphere southern hemisphere yeah you know, definitely I, I i bunkered down for a couple of years after doing um australia new zealand um and france but it didn't last very long i think i stayed in hawke's bay for for about two or three years and then um i suppose the the loss of my marriage probably dictated um flexibility again um and i i pretty quickly packed packed my bags and, and actually went to america um from there before heading back to to france and then to australia and then that continued for a few more years and has really only slowed down in the last couple of years because of uh of vanguardist wines mm. um uh, growing and, and needing a lot more of my time mm-hmm. um, outside of just the the winemaking season so how did you find the the uh, the u.s experience um it, it was a really good one it was probably uh, a good timing for me where, where i was having a bit of a, a struggle personally to um immerse myself into a job with with the kendall family kendall jackson family um at la crema um we had a we had an extremely big vintage uh there and it um i had sort of a a nighttime winemaker sort of supervisory role with with a lot of people mm-hmm. to look after so i didn't have too much chance to think about some of the the less fun stuff that it's happened had happened in my life at that time and um it was it was really interesting because it was um a lot of really high quality fruit but but in big volumes like i'd never seen before you know hand harvested fruit i think around about seven or eight thousand tons of hand harvested fruit which was um, quite epic in in its first sense and and treating them um, as really, really good batches, but on a big scale, it was it was very interesting, and and obviously culturally, very different from um, I think the rest of the world. What was um, your reason for um, going to certain regions, countries? Like, did you kind of just wanted, you know, go somewhere that made great wine, or did you have particular varieties or climates that you kind of were selecting where you went uh, based on? I tried to stay um, fairly open-minded. I, I wanted to work with everything in in different climates, um, and and experience more because I think you know there, there's so much out there as a young winemaker, and um, I didn't want to lock myself down to too much to hot climate or cool climate or or super aromatics um, in the early phases. And um, I think just naturally I started falling quite strongly for a couple of varieties such as Grenache and Riesling. Um, and yeah, I, I really tried hard to work in very big facilities, uh, very small facilities and in different climates, um, early on. Where did the Riesling, um, love affair begin? Um, drank, drank some good Rieslings in New Zealand. I think 
throughout um, throughout Marlborough and, and Wipera and um, Central Otago. And then I reckon when I got exposed being in Australia, um, 2007 and 2008, um, got exposed to a lot of Claire and Eden Rieslings and, and thought they were incredible wines that these uh, wines of austerity and, and dryness, but but really lovely fruit as well, which was a, a, a very different style of wine from what I'd seen previously. Um, and that, that got me very interested, very interested very quickly. Mm. Did you have an opportunity to do any European Riesling vintages? Um, unfortunately not. I've, I've really focused now on, on Grenache um, and off the back of that Grenache Grey and, and Grenache Blanc and Macabu, which, which I also uh, really enjoy. Um, yeah, would would absolutely love to go and work in the Rheingau or, or in the Alsace, but I probably have got to the point now where where I really need to focus and and dial in on the one percenters, maybe um, less so than spreading spreading out more and hmm. <laughs> doing that. So, so where, now, <laughs> where where was the uh, when when was the first time you kind of started to settle down a little bit and try to have a bit more consistency and and stay in one place? Um, had a, had a good crack at it and, and a big thought around it in, in 2013, actually in, in Central Otago. Um, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd made a, a great relationship with, um, Alexandra and Edouard, who are my business partners that are, um, currently based in Bone. And, and we'd had some, some good time together where we'd shared stories and, and shared aspirations and thought that, we we would do business together, um, but we just wasn't weren't, weren't sure how how that was going to end up. So I, I did. How, have, how did you meet them? Uh, we met in Hawke's Bay. So Edouard's family um, were distributing a lot of um, high end Australian and New Zealand wineries throughout Europe. So he was over working for um, Craigie Range um, as a sort of a stagiaire experience to to learn more about viticulture and winemaking and. In New Zealand, he then went on to Sean Smith to do a similar role. Um, and Alexandra, who's now his wife, she she had moved to Craigie Range um, in a marketing role, having finished or, or during the uh, the Master of Wine business through University of Adelaide. Um, so we just sort of coincidentally met, and then we shared a lot of good wines and shared a lot of good stories. And um, yeah, from from there we. Without any really rules, we, we knew we wanted to do business together. Um, and there was some sort of key key strengths between marketing, business, uh, winemaking, viticulture um, that uh, we all believed in. So, yeah, we, we tried to launch um, potentially a Central Otago-based wine business that was going to be sales in Australia in 20, 2013. Um, that, that didn't unfold. Uh, I came back um, to the Hunter and fourteen, and had a had a great opportunity to work with with a nice vineyard, and and um, and had some space to to make a bit of wine. So I made the call and said, "Look, I'm I'm starting off with um, some Hunter Semillon, and and I'm doing it, and it's going to be uh, skins fermented, and it's going to be barrel fermented. And do you want do you want a piece of it?" Right. And they said yes. Okay. Um, what was your um, impetus to work with Hunter Semillon in that way? Um. I I really thought about it before before we decided that or before I decided that I was going to make wine for our own business. Um, an important uh, factor was going to be producing something different. Um, I think from a very low resource point to start a wine brand to try and compete against the great 
classic producers of Australia would, would have been a mistake for me. So um, I really thought about some of the techniques, techniques and processes um, that I've been playing around with over the previous sort of 10 years and how that could create a product that was unique, um, identifiable, and was interesting, um, probably in a, in a place where Australian sort of wine styles were starting to make a bit of a change in that really small producer um, bracket. Did you have, um, were there certain producers from Australia, for example, that you kind of used as good reference points for working that way? And and how were you kind of introduced to these techniques and approaches previously? Um, there wasn't a lot of Australian um, producers that had inspired it, mostly because I hadn't spent a lot of time in Australia. I was coming and sort of doing a vintage and then, and then getting out. Um, but there's always just those little bits and pieces you pick up throughout the cellars, throughout the world. Um, we started playing with some skin contact um, with Grenache Gris and, and Macabu down in the south of France in 2009. Um, and some of it worked really well, some of it didn't work at all. Um, there were, yeah, little bits and pieces that are picked up along the way, but there certainly wasn't a technique where I'm like, oh, okay, that's how I'm going to make my wine. It's more of a feel of um, if I put a whole bunch um, of parts together that hopefully the sum becomes greater. Mm. Mm. Uh, and so um, tell me, how did the uh, the Hunter experience go? It was it was really good. Um, it's obviously a very classic wine region. It's um, a region that's uh, steeped in tradition. And um, I think doing what I was trying to do with the wine was was really a respect to, to how good um, the classic producers um, really do what they do and and pushing a style that's different and, and not even really um, necessarily um, respectful to uh, that varietal from that region um, was, you know, I'm sure something that is, is always a little bit awkward. It, it sort of can can either, you know, freak people out or or push them into a direction where they feel like it's not really um, a good example of, of what that region is. But I think generally the people were quite understanding and, and felt it, if not um, good, at least interesting. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I can imagine um, when you're working with a variety in a region that that relationship is so iconic, do you take things away from you know, the, the, the norm uh, and of the expectation is probably pretty scary, um, you know, not just for, for, for you but also for the consumer um, when they're being introduced to characters, characteristics and personality of, of a wine that uh, is so against the grain it, uh, it potentially could rub people the wrong way. Yeah, and look, I'm sure it did. Um, it's it's certainly nothing, nothing that I'm afraid of doing. <laughs> I don't mind mind rubbing it up the wrong way because it comes from the from the right place, and that's a a place of um, actually respect um, when you look into it deep down, and also from a place of we need to be creative as winemakers, and um, not necessarily. I don't believe necessarily that all the traditional ways are the maybe even best way at showing terroir or or whatever you want to call it. Um, so we, we need to keep pushing the boundaries as, um, you know, probably Southern, Southern Hemisphere especially mm. um, with what's, you know, the tradition of, of Europe um, and, and bring more interest to the game too. Uh, and it's clearly happening. We don't really even need to talk about it now because it's, <laughs> it's there, it's being done and there's so many great um, flag bearers for that in Australia and, and I think all regions are probably 
doing it now as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so was this project um, solely yourself or were you involved with uh, Edouard's family? Um, not with Edouard's family, just with Edouard and, and Alexandra personally. Um, and their involvement was to come on as 50% partners and we were going to make 150 cases of wine and and work out the rest later. So obviously at this point they were in Bordeaux where, where Edouard was finishing his Master of Wine Business at the University of Bordeaux. Um, and there wasn't a lot that they could, uh, they couldn't do anything physically with, with the winemaking or, or direct any of that. But there was always that supportive feeling of um, as this grows and we start to make a few more rules, I'm going to have um, a lot of uh, skill sets, um, you know, sales, marketing, websites, um, design, uh, growth of the business, opportunity for export, um, there and even though we're we're four years in now we've we've expanded the range a lot and um i guess edouard and, and ali's role now are really starting to kick in we've we've just uh had our wines land in france uh, which is which is very exciting for a for a small australian producer mm. um yeah but but we still we still don't have firm rules we don't we don't know what the end point is or or really how far it's going to go we're, we've sort of got to a point now where we're going to stabilize for a little bit and and work on on these small export markets um and try and increase quality was the hunter experience the genesis of vanguardist or was that something separate and how did vanguardist sort of start yeah i mean that's vanguardist really started when we when we met in hawks bay we 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 spent some good time together and um obviously we didn't produce a wine there and we didn't end up producing wine for a couple more years but we knew at this point that we were going to do something, um, right? And and so in in terms of Vanguardist in its in its current form, how did that start? Um, in in terms of South Australia, in South Australia, yeah, okay. Um, so other than the love for for Semyon and and the real respect for the hunter, I had um, that ethereal experience for me where in two thousand and nine when I walked into the to the Grenache vineyards um, down in Maury. I was with Ben Rankin, which you know, and you've, former you've guest had him podcast. on the show. Yep. Yeah. Form, former guest. Um, I was, I was working with him and we, uh, we went down into Maury and he'd, he'd already been there and, and he drove us down through these incredible terroir of, of pure black schist. And we, we turn up there and my mind was just blown about these bush vines that were old and, and beautiful and flourishing in such a, um, torrid environment you know it was hot and dry it was dry and i just i almost instantly fell in love so on the back of that um came searching um it was it was a bit of a sales trip slash searching for vineyard trip with the the first vanguardist hunter valley blanc it was called um left Semyon off the label for for obvious reasons and um came to adelaide to to show a few people the wine um and to to look for vineyards. So, um, basically, Edouard had worked with with BK and, and Taris um, when he was on his Australian experience, and um, we were very lucky that uh, BK knew some people close to his vineyard in in Blue Springs. Put me on to uh, Mr. Robert Randy, who who we work with still today, um, to find our Grenache vineyard. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's essentially the story of the Grenache and. And I had worked uh, vintage in the Clear Valley with Napstein, um, so I went there searching for Riesling. 
um, ended up taking a vintage job and then ended up staying there for two years. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, was that where you were making your wines as well? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So in kind of, in, in, in terms of starting, um, uh, you know, a long-term plan as far as building, um, a, a brand, building a range, building, um, consistency of, uh, of wine supply, you have to, you know, as you say, find vineyards. So you basically are approaching growers that have fruit available or don't have contracts with, with other, um, wine, wine producers. Like how, how does someone, cause you know, I've, I've had the experience in the last three years of kind of trying to find some bits and pieces here and there, but not yet getting to a point where I can kind of say, right, I, I want to, this much of this grape variety every year moving forward. How, how do you, how does someone, is, is South Australia a better place in Australia to find those kind of relationships? Um, I'm not sure. I think first and foremost, being, being honest and, and being a good person when you knock on, especially a small grower's door is, is an extremely good place to start. And, and starting very humbly with that grower is, is another good, good place to start where, um, in, in the example of the Grenache vineyard in 2015, when I took the first fruit, I had maybe, uh, about 15% of the vineyard. And, um, the, the 48 year old dry grown bush vines that were planted by the man who owns it now. Um, so he spent his whole life around it. So I, I learned a lot from him in, in the first year. And then we just have more and more discussions. Um, on the back of that, I said, well, this is, this is, you know, pretty much living my dream. I'm making Grenache off, old bush vines um, and, and the fruit's impeccable. Can I please have some more? And there was some pretty loose contracts that um, he was happy for me to take more in, in 2016. Um, so I got about 50% of the vineyard um, by this stage. Um, and it was more of an area. It wasn't to say I'm going to take five tons or 10 tons. It's like, um, can I can I sort of work on that plot there? And so when you say work on, as in you're getting out into the vineyards and you're doing the work or you're working I, with I do them some of the work. Kind um, of directing, look, can we make sure that, you know, we're not irrigated? Well, if it's dry ground, obviously, we don't have to worry about that. But as far as, you know, sprays and that kind of thing? Yeah, certainly directing would be um, a good way to put it in, in the earlier days. And I think um, quite strong directing now, but but in a, in a place that... Um, we can have really great conversations about it because he's he's been on that vineyard for 48 years and for me to come and tell him that this is what we need to do what we have to do to move forward i think would be a real big mistake right i think in the next three to five years i mean it's our dream that we we buy this vineyard right um and if we have enough money we, we will be able to buy buy the vineyard mm -hmm. so it's it's a really a, a long and slow development of the relationship uh, the cultural practices that we're using in the vineyard and and talking about you know really looking after this vineyard and and even trying to pay more sure um, of course which which i i keep on i actually keep on raising the price each year on the fruit he, right. he hasn't asked for more but there's other people that are around that have um have have seen the vineyard and used the vineyard that that really want the fruit as well but i've actually got to the point now where i have the the whole three and a half hectares yeah. Grenache. Right, okay. Sorry. And and there's no discussion about leasing it and working it yourself? Um, there is. We're we're in those discussions now. So yeah, cool. uh, I actually meet with them next week and um look at potentially leasing the whole vineyard and, mm -hmm. and taking him um 
out of the picture as far as him having to drive around and drive tractors and, and look after contractors. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the sort of four years where we've got to now, which, um, has been a, a great journey and, and we'll keep working together until hopefully, uh, I can purchase a vineyard and look after it mm. for, for the rest of my lifetime anyway. So those first two vintages were spent at Napstone. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Um, when you kind of were starting from scratch in that, uh, in, in that environment, as far as, um, your brand, um, did you have an idea about firstly how you wanted to work with the fruit in the cellars? And then I guess, did you have direction as far as a range of products or did you kind of say, look, I'm just going to try and make everything the best that it can be. And then I'll make decisions down the line as far as blends and, and that, that kind of thing. Um, first year was, um, was, was small batch. Like it was, um, we went from, um, 150 dozen of Semillon Hunter Valley Blanc in 14, uh, to 15, about 150 dozen of Grenache X Blue Springs and about 150 dozen of Riesling X Claire. Um, so although there were quite a few techniques used, uh, skin contact barrel ferment, it was only ever going to be one blend. Um, and that was, the amount of growth that we could afford, um, physically to pay for, um, and to bottle, and then the amount of time that I could spend to sounds market very, it. Sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a common, uh, probably common story amongst maybe a hundred young winemakers in Australia right now. Yeah. Um, and then off the back of that, we were able to double growth again in sixteen. But this is the point where I wanted to create uh, a lot of batches that were um, looking at different pick times so we, we would pick the vineyard at least twice if not uh, up to five times per vineyard now um, to give us a spectrum of flavors uh, a spectrum of acidity um, and then we're talking skin contact barrel ferment and stainless ferment um, and, I, and I wanted two products I wanted a product that was spring release it still had the same integrity it was it was the same fruit as vanguardist um, but in a, in a fresher style a less polarizing style um, I wanted that and at a cheap, cheaper price point. Um, and then it also helped me really push further Vanguardist, um, as a style. I can use a lot more skin contact, a lot of barrel ferment. And when something doesn't work, it comes into that fresher style that, that might be fermented in stainless, um, and makes that stainless more interesting, but doesn't take it too far. Right. Okay. And, and, and so that's where you make decisions as far as for Petit Vanguard and the Vanguardist wines. Exactly. Yeah. So in, in 2016, we actually released a brand called Safer Seal by Vanguardist. Um, and we went real, as soon as we printed the labels, actually, I thought it was a, a bit of a disaster that I, I hated the labels and I didn't like the name, <laughs> um, which is a weird time to make that decision. So we stuck with it for a year. Um, but as soon as we, we basically bottled that wine, we were on the, the path for a new brand, which is now La Petite Vanguard. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's something we're really happy with. We're working with a designer um, from, from Perth uh, on the labels, uh, Wildegrim. And it's it works really well with the brands. There's um, obviously, like I said, the same integrity in the wines, but they're, they're really different styles. But it's it's what's really interesting is they come off the same fruit from the same vineyard. Yeah, okay. Um, and it's a stylistic thing. Um, that creates a differentiation and obviously packaging. Um, and then the other thing, I guess, with that several picks per vineyard, we've got a lot more freshness and, and natural acidity early on and a lot more concentration later. But it's often Vanguardist needs quite a bit of that 
carbonic uh, to brighten it up a little bit. Right. And La Petite needs some of that fleshier, later pick stuff. Yeah. To give it a little more structure. Yeah. So they, they work quite harmoniously. Yeah. And and I think still bring quite different wines to the table. And and obviously you'd got to a volume where you could isolate sort of the best parts of the wine to be bottled under Vanguardist and therefore be able to charge a more premium price for it because you could then have this the more entry uh, point um, and, and still kind of make all the money back. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's like uh, like I'll say to people when we're tasting, it's not a real qualitative um, uh, difference between the wines. It's a real style difference. Sure, okay. And that style sits in two different, really different segments of the market. Um, I like to think that the La Petite Vanguard wines will um, hopefully always over-deliver because we're putting all of that effort into the fruit, which is everything. And it's the same fruit as what we put into Vanguardist, but we'll bring a really different style to the table. Um with, with Vanguardus versus what La Petite Vanguardus is delivering. Hmm. And obviously, you know, a big part of what you're doing is spending time in the trade and actually selling wine yourself, um, which is what you've been doing here in Melbourne. Do you think that that uh, has been really helpful for you as far as being able to engage with buyers, decision makers, and uh, in some cases the, the final consumer um, in kind of providing some feedback and 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 – Make, helping you make decisions for for future vintages. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's a real important to me. I actually I love I love the business of wine as well, um, and being able to to gather that experience that is um, is viticulture is is winemaking is um, is writing invoices and and showing uh, and chasing invoices and Fast um, statements. Bass statements, all of that stuff, um, and working with psalms and working with chefs and working with with the with the customers, the final end user, um, is actually an amazing experience. It's it's really humbling and it's um, it's something that I, I love doing. I think uh, sometimes I feel guilty that I should be spending more time in the vineyard or more time in the winery, um, but but I really love the time in the trade as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it does. It teaches you so much. It, it you get a, a really good feeling um, of where or feel sorry of where the wines are at stylistically, um, uh, price wise, um, volume wise. You're able to see what else is going on in the market and and you know, what what trends are happening as well. Exactly, exactly. So, um, what's sort of the the future or the immediate future showing for Vanguardus? You talked about doing some stuff over in France. Yeah, so. I think um, we've got to a point now where we're around about um, close to 20,000 bottles across mm, 10 or 11 SKUs, which is probably too many SKUs, but it's not going to change. Um, and we've struggled with cash flow um, as a small business, paying for that growth. So we're going to put the brakes on probably for a couple of years and, and really look at um, uh, just increasing our relationships with with the growers and the vineyards, which which are, seem to be really set for now, um, even though they are all handshake agreements. Um, so growing those relationships, spending more time in the vineyard and, and not really looking at any more products or, or really any more growth in products. Um, and then on the back of that, yeah, I guess probably our, our three to five-year goal is, is to be able to purchase um, either some holdings in, in one of the vineyards we, we're currently using or... Um, or maybe some some winery sort of 
uh, holdings or or maybe a bit of both. Um, yeah, fun. That, and then you're looking at exporting as well. Yeah, so we we have we've um, it's it's a a really new new uh, game for us and to have uh, cold wines back in New Zealand to to support us with that that early transition into New Zealand with with a couple of pallets has been awesome and it's and it's very very exciting for us to uh, the wines turned up in bone after being held up in uh, Rotterdam for for nearly three weeks uh, last Friday and. Um, I believe that uh, Alexandra is actually in trade in Paris today. Um, we've got uh, Edouard heading to Bordeaux next week, and um, through Edouard's contacts, we've we've actually got a, a distributor for the north of France, which um, which have a really incredible portfolio. So it's going to be nice to have our our wines mm. um, in there as well. Awesome. Well, um, look, I've certainly enjoyed uh, tasting some of the wines recently and I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing how things evolve and, and, and grow bit by bit, but, um, it has been fantastic to have you on. Um, I really do appreciate you making the trip, uh, and, uh, and making some time. Um, is there anything upcoming as far as events or, um, new wines coming out you'd like to let the listeners know about and possibly direct them towards some website addresses and social media accounts? Yeah, so we've got uh, we've got the new release of um, twenty seventeen Vanguardus, which has just been rolled out throughout Perth, uh, Sydney, Melbourne, um, and Adelaide as of Sunday. Um, Instagram vanguardiswines.com, um and the website. Uh, some pretty cool new projects in the line for for another project, which is Songlier Wines um, of mine as well. So that's uh, that's having a bit of fun with that at the moment. Um, so yeah, good times ahead. Yeah, cool. Well, um, all the best with uh, with future vintages and lots of wine sales as well. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gansbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. And as always, you can follow me on social media at Intrepid Wino on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. Uh, please do check out my YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino. Lots of different videos there, uh, including um, almost 200 Let's Taste videos, one of which was for Vanguardist Wines, uh, and lots of different uh, other experiences, including my winemaking uh, as well. Uh, make sure you subscribe, leave a comment, like a few videos, and share it on social media as well. You can follow the podcast on iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, uh, Podbean, iHeartRadio. Subscribing means you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. You can access the back catalogue. Uh, and also, it's a great way to provide some feedback to myself and the listeners and also the guests, importantly, um, by leaving a rating and a review. I really do appreciate everyone who has left a review recently. Uh, as always, you can find that information on my website, introvertguano.com. Uh, as well as ways of getting in contact with me there. Uh, and uh, I'd love to hear from you. Um, I've got some great guests coming up as well. Uh, but until then, bye. Earbuds, Melbourne's podcast network. Earbudsnetwork.com.